Hi, welcome to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations for the Free Russia Foundation. Uh, this week, we're joined by President Tomas Ilvis, the former president of Estonia, and I dare say one of Europe's last great statesmen. Actually, somebody who I once described as a thwarted New York intellectual, but that's a, another story. President Ilvis, welcome. So first I want to ask, what is the view, you're in Tallinn at the moment, what is the view from Europe? about what is taking place in the United States, the state of political psychosis that seems to have gripped this country, and also the uh, drawn out, agonized process by which we're coming to determination. I mean, obviously in Estonia, it's very easy to cast a vote. You do it on the computer, and here it's election day has become election week. So what? tell me what the observations are. Well, I think you can, across Europe, with a few exceptions, I'm in one of them, but there is just an incredible sigh of relief that you can hear, just feel it in the air, just... Mm -hmm. <sighs> I mean, this is after four years of never understood, never experienced primitive boorish behavior directed at Europeans who largely because of the United States have managed to get over the horrors of World War II and begun to act in a civilized fashion and basically you know, it was sticks and carrots and a lot of sticks in 1945, then a lot of carrots after that, but who have become all oh, functioning liberal democracies. And this incredible hostility that was directed toward them by Trump and his uh, little, uh, little minions, I mean, the, the Trump's ambassador to Germany, I mean, who basically was a complete idiot, or I mean, he still is, but I guess we got another 74 days of it, insulting everyone, breaking all sort of rules of civilized behavior. Then you had the clown, Sondland, who was the uh, hotelier, yeah. who was made ambassador to the European Union, who managed to say within a few weeks of his time there to senior officials that he has come to Brussels to destroy the European Union. Now, let's think about it. If you're an American, you say, well, I mean, okay, so what? I mean, if any ambassador came to the United States and told senior officials in the US government that he has come to America with the goal of destroying the United States, he's not going to be an ambassador for long. Not in the Trump administration. <laughs> <laughs> And then this clown goes off and spends all his time in Ukraine trying to dig up Kompromat on Joe Biden. I mean, Sondland was, I mean, he was the ambassador of the European Union. Ukraine is not in the European Union. I mean, it's, you know, so far away from joining the European Union these days with what's going on there. And then he spends his time gathering compromising materials on the man who now is the President-elect, and let me say, President-elect Biden. Yeah, so a sigh of relief among EU member states, NATO well, member states. Individuals, I mean, insulting, yeah. uh, like probably the consistently mo bravest, I mean, sort of most uh, important politician in Europe today, Angela Merkel, repeatedly. I mean, there are other, other sort of multiple ripples of... Event, some of them which you can 
we haven't seen yet, but some of which are clearly predictable. I think that the um, the British fantasy of its special relationship will collapse in its entirety. We will we do already have early indications when uh, the current government in the UK said, well, then we'll have our free trade agreement with uh, the United States and Nancy Pelosi's, or I don't know if it was Nancy Pelosi, but anyway, someone in the leadership of the Congress, even during the still, the current administration still in office was like, no, we're going to have a free trade agreement with Europe and then we'll see what other free trade agreements we get. Well, the Obama people had told the Brits before Brexit was decided, you're going to have to wait in line like everybody else. You're not yeah. preferential treatment. So, OK, it's one thing we talk about Europe, but there are outliers. Viktor Orban was plumping for a Trump victory, the prime minister in Hungary. Uh, Trump seemed to have a fairly good working relationship with the current Polish government. I, I think it more with both. I mean, he really yep. was preferential. I mean, Orban was feted in the White House, feted, feted in the feted. Well, Bannon, Bannon had said that uh, Orban was Donald Trump before Donald Trump. So he was kind of a, a model Precisely. archetype for what they were trying to do in the United States and seemed now to have failed, or at least... And then you had, and then you do have Poland, where he went and gave a very bizarre speech, and one of the only sort of place really in continental Europe where he made a major statement. You know, his behavior at NATO was utterly abysmal, berating people, and people were throwing up their hands, saying, "What is this?" I mean, you know, NATO is an organization. I mean, we you know, in the U.S. it's like, okay, NATO, you know, military, but I mean, it's where countries actually discuss issues there. They come together. They're talking about the most important thing for every country, especially in Europe, which is their security. And then you have someone there who comes and acts like an utter bore, right? Do you anticipate that a Biden foreign policy, I mean, obviously there's been many kind of think pieces and foreign affairs and elsewhere about what it's going to look like. My impression, at least right now, is the, the new president will have to do so much work to try and sort of put America's house in order before he can focus on either the transatlantic relationship or revivifying um, alliances with the EU or, or kind of soothing. Barack Obama was also completely focused on domestic issues and he was hit with a pretty big one as soon as he came in office, which was the financial crisis. Right. Joe Biden, who already had a, a long, long, long track record uh, on the Foreign Affairs Committee as a fundamental transatlanticist and someone fundamentally interested in dealing with foreign affairs was actually the point man for virtually all issues relating to foreign policy, especially toward Europe. I met Senator Biden in 1988, this is like 32 years ago, when he was at Radio Free Europe and came and gave a talk. And then uh, so I was a service, I was the, one of the directors and we met with so, and from there on in, I mean, he was always coming to Europe and he was the man who during the eight years of the Obama administration was perpetually dealing with issues in Eastern Europe and Western Europe as well, obviously. Yeah. While many people criticize the Obama administration for its foreign policy failures, I can't remember any earlier U.S. administration in my conscious period, uh, that is in the last, say, 40 years that actually had devoted so much senior level, meaning vice presidential level attention to Europe. Now, I can't speak for other parts of the world, but certainly from a European perspective, Joe Biden really knew the issues. But that's looking at the top. 
what we have, I mean, is a complete decimation of the senior staff in the State Department dealing with these issues. I mean, one of the first persons to be fired was Victoria Newland, who was the Assistant Secretary for Europe. I mean, she was like fired like on day one. And more or less ran the Ukraine file during the association agreement negotiations and all the rest of it, right? But she handled all of Europe. That was her thing. I mean, she is one of the great experts on Europe. She's a Republican on top of all else. And this is, will be the difference, is that Tory Newland was at the highest levels of U.S. foreign policy in the U.S. during the Barack Obama administration, where she was a Republican. And her husband, Bob Kagan, was one of the biggest critics of the Obama administration. But as is traditional for U.S. politics, for U.S. administrations, when it comes, I mean, when you say that, okay, foreign policy stops at at the border or at the shore, well, this was in fact true. I mean, she was really good in what she did and really knew her stuff. So she was elevated to that position during the Democrat administration, even though she's a Republican, because she was good. Basically, what you have now are tens and tens, if not hundreds of U.S. officials who are experts in their field who have been sidelined. And, you know, we know the more more egregious cases. I mean, obviously, kind of like Maria Jovanovic Mm. in Ukraine. But, I mean, there are all kinds of people who were shunted elsewhere or out of their jobs or just basically life was made so difficult for utterly irrelevant political reasons. You would imagine a kind of replenishing effect under a Biden presidency, that a lot of these subject matter experts will be invited back. I hope they are. And I assume they are as well, because it's it's quite obvious to anyone who deals, who is at a potential future state level, that uh, the what has happened to U.S. diplomacy in the past four years is so horrible. You're going to have to pull these people back. And I think that will be met with a very positive response here. The longer term effect, I think, will be, however, that I would say all of us took the U.S. strong transatlantic tradition of basically everyone's lifetime. I mean, the U.S. transatlantic position dates to like 1948 or 47. I mean, the, the Marshall Plan and then the Berlin Airlift and NATO and all of the huge support that was given to the creation of the European Union and then the IMF, all that. It was a given for basically... Anyone who's alive today, because if I mean you're already really old if you were a kid in 1945. I mean, you're really old already. I mean, you're 80, right? Over 82. We have all grown up in Europe with this feeling of the United States as our big partner and guarantor of security, which has obviously changed its form from, say, before 1989 and then post-1989. During the what we can perhaps now call the Trump anomaly, there was a sense among Europeans that, okay, that guarantee, that post-war liberal order underwritten by American hard power and soft power and, frankly, just attention span is at an end. And so now we, as a continent, must take our destiny into our own hands and have a kind of internationalist sovereignty unto ourselves, right? And then you begin to see the exercise of this, to my mind, personified in Emmanuel Macron. 
and what he's trying to do, not just in Europe, but in the Middle East, for instance, and do, I dare say, rather unsuccessfully. Russia policy. Russia policy. So tell me your view of, I I never quite appreciated the uh, the Henry Kissinger line, uh, what's the phone number for Europe? But tell me how you see that line of thinking and that trajectory. Is it going to be now, we breathe a sigh of relief, America is tentatively back. Maybe it's this this long-term trend is simply in remission under Biden. Obviously, if Trump can happen once, it can happen again. First of all, the we should go it alone tradition actually is very old and goes back to Charles de Gaulle. You know, Charles de Gaulle pulled out of NATO. I mean, and it took uh, Nicolas Sarkozy to bring France back into NATO. I mean, it was like a semi-member or sort of a, uh, I mean, it's back into the military command structure, which was what they pulled out of. But what is, I mean, <laughs> that's the whole point. That tendency has always been there, but it never had much purchase and was viewed as kind of a French aberration occasionally picked up by other politicians, but it was a French thing. But in the curious thing is that any attempts at any kind of security autonomy within the European Union were always met with enormous U.S. pushback and pressure not to do it. I mean, the idea of a of a European army was like the one thing that was has been anathema to the United States. The other thing you need to understand really the why the US is that that the US has no real serious treaty connections to Europe, the continent except through NATO. I mean it is the conduit of US relations with the European continent and the basis of so much of it. Uh, And that also accounts for, say, the huge difference between um, relations with NATO members as opposed to non-NATO members. It's not just a military thing, but that's just how the U.S. views you. I mean, uh, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. I mean, that you know, we've now had a one-term, one, I mean, a first-time experience with the United States taking a completely bizarre and sort of unfathomable position to its friends, very close friends, people who actually sent their troops to die, fight for and die in Afghanistan. And people are like, what? And okay, so now we have the situation where like, it's over. Thank God. But there is always in the back of your mind, well, you know, I mean, who knows where it's going to be? It appears right now that we're going to have this guy who we know real well, we've known for 30, 40 years, with whom uh, we're on a first name basis. And now we're back to the good old days. But you never know. In four years, you have Donald Trump Jr., President Donald Trump Jr. Maybe we're like, oh God, it's so me all over. Same President thing. Tucker Carlson in 2024, who right. then I, I side with Russia. I think there's a there's another thing that's happening at the same time as Europe is trying taking its own inventory, which is you know America has now begun largely thanks to President Putin and the invasion and occupation of Crimea has largely begun to pivot away from the global war on terror mindset. You know that we are at war everywhere with non-state actors back into more of a conventional geopolitical framework that, no, actually, we need to have a 25-year strategic policy of deterrence and containment for states, rogue states, criminal regimes, whatever you want to call them. Well, yeah, we, we have to reinvest in Europe. I mean, I remember, I think it was at a Leonard Mary conference, gosh, it must have been close to 10 years ago, and you gave a speech, and you said just the, the other week, 
the last American tank left Estonian soil, right? Um, in the sense that, well, we're now part of NATO and, you know, America feels safe and secure. I think it was Alan Riley, you know, the British professor of energy security who leaned over and whispered in my ear, and it won't be long before they're invited back. And that proved to be too prescient, right? I mean, nobody at that point anticipated a Russian Anschluss in European soil. But there does seem to be now a consensus, both among the Republicans who are regaining some of their marbles now and already showing Mr. Trump the door, and certainly among the Democrats who are quite hawkish on against the Kremlin, that no, we do have to have some form of this security guarantee and Europe is going to be the centerpiece of it all. I mean, there is a sense of recessional from the Middle East where we have lost two major wars and you know Syria is now a kind of crisis management policy rather than any form of intervention. So, I mean, in that sense, can we say it's optimistic or it's seeming optimistic at the moment? Well, it has to do with Russian policy where yeah. you can imagine the, especially Eastern Europe, but actually all of Europe kind of looked aghast, amazed, appalled. I mean, at the attitude towards Vladimir Putin from the mm -hmm. Trump administration. And and also not only by Trump himself, but his various minions. And if you look at sort of the with their approach to Ukraine, it was basically Europe became flyover land for for the Putin-Trump relationship. And Moscow actually became the first port of call to do business, particularly right. if you were in, in the Middle East, which is kind of what he wanted with his redeployment or exercising a force in that region. There is now this period of almost a reset of American foreign policy thinking. They don't want, clearly they don't want George W. Bush 2.0. Obama was either a mixed bag or a failure, depending on who you ask. And Trump was just this kind of radioactive. Well, as I, I was saying, I mean, during the Obama administration, uh, there was a considerable amount of dissatisfaction with Middle East policy. But in terms of policy toward us, yeah, he's pretty good. But yeah, it, I mean, there was also a dis distinction, or I should say disparity in the Obama administration. I mean, you know, Joe Biden, for instance, would have armed the Ukrainian military. Yeah, he'd been making the calls. It was Obama who thought that would be an escalation. Yeah, I mean, there was a, well, I mean, we have this uh, something now in my, uh, in my old, wise old age of seeing like four or five, six times. I mean, the concept, whatever you want to call it, but of reset with Russia is something that, I mean, it's not just the United States, which has gone through this a number of times, but it's also much of Europe. I mean, every time you get a new foreign minister, or prime minister, okay, I'm going to be the one who's going to solve this because you think you're going to be covered in glory. And usually the people have no clue about how to deal with Russia, but they just come in and say, oh, I'm going to do this. Well, this is like a catechism. I mean, you've seen, and I think you even participated in a, a rebuttal to that open letter that right. was published to which Fiona Hill and, and you know, some of the people who were actively involved in exposing Trump's scary Moscow tilt policies, essentially saying we need to renew our relationship with the Kremlin. So talk to me, why do you think that is? We keep having this sort of cyclical, oh, okay, if only we do this, then suddenly, you know, Mr. Putin won't go around WMDing dissidents or defectors. I mean, t tell me why you think that's the case. It keeps coming back around. You know, I've never quite understood it, except perhaps, you know, sort of the thing you think that you're going to get something for it, be it fame, glory, or contracts. I mean, or treaties. Like, treaties, but I mean, gas contracts. I mean, so. A good job working for Gazprom. I mean, well, that's more the European side of it. But now the American side, would you anticipate a Biden policy being 
hey, you know, maybe it is time for a reset. What is it? Not even 3.0, 2, 4.0, it's like 12.0, right? The reset mindset, it's not simply American. And it has simply empirically always ended up badly. But I don't think this is going to happen this time for other reasons, which is that the experience of the Democratic Party, we can argue over how successful the Russian interventions were. And, you know, some people say, well, I mean, they did it, but it didn't really have an effect in 2016 and so forth. Regardless, they did it. And I think that uh, the new administration is not exactly disposed in a friendly manner for this kind of overt manipulation. And of course, taking positions on candidates in U.S. elections is never a very smart thing to do. So, I mean, they tried to do it again this year. It's just they failed. And I know that some of the people who will be involved, I mean, they were, I mean, they didn't miss what the Russians were doing. And they will be in office in a matter of uh, a couple of months. They'll be running European policy, Russian policy. And these are people who have even fewer illusions about Russia than in the past because they saw what it did to the United States in, in 2016 and continued to do so. And from a party political point of view, not only deprived the Democrats of the White House in 2016, but delivered us Donald Trump, kind of personal grievance. If you're now sitting, if you're Putin sitting in Moscow, looking at sort of what is going to be imminently the results of this election, and knowing that, okay, your back is to the wall with respect to any kind of relationship with Washington. I mean, what do you anticipate him doing? I mean, clearly there's going to be some kind of pro forma congratulations, President-elect Biden. Uh, I look forward to working with you, this kind of thing. But does this constrain the aggressiveness and the recklessness of, you know, whether it's poisoning opposition leaders or taking out, you know? Well, I mean, from my experience, Russia basically is going to calm down for a bit and then they'll kind of see where they can go to, you know, it's kind of Lenin, right? If if you have a bayonet, you, if it's mush, you push, if you hit steel, you stop. And if you hit mush, you keep pressing. I mean, this is great humanistic expressions, right? That's what they'll do. And that's what they always do. They'll see what they can get away with. And if they get, they get slapped down or punched in the nose, they won't go any further. I mean, that's kind of this this unwillingness part of uh, various U.S. administrations never to really like play hardball with the Russians yeah. has been, you know, the problem in many cases. I mean, and not only U.S., it's the, you know, it's the Europe. 2008, within a month after the um, invasion of Georgia, they were reestablishing everything with them, right? I mean, it was like, eh, okay. Yeah. While Georgia was was then and can, continues to this day to have a significant portion of its territory occupied by the Russian An army. increasing portion. Well, I, I have naive hope in that knowing the people who should be filling positions, these are policymaking decisions of the U.S. government with regard to Europe and to, toward Russia are people who will not be taken in by the kind of the silly platitudes, right? I, I don't anticipate the U.S. administration agreeing to a uh, a common cyber defense as, <laughs> as the Trump administration did, which, I mean, which I guess smart people... I mean, who better to fight fires that, than the arsonist, right? Um, they know how it works and what burns quickest. But let me ask you this about... We were talking about NATO and we're talking about unilateral exertions of power that kind of have happened, not on the sidelines, but have happened whilst America was in this crisis. Turkey. Turkey is intervening 
in foreign countries from obviously Syria, Libya, and now on behalf of Azerbaijan over Nagorno-Karabakh. With Turkey, we're dealing with a case of major corruption of Donald Trump. This is not short-sighted or misguided geopolitics. This is a deal. I mean, it's a private economic deal, financial deal for a hotel. I mean, this is what's happening, right? And, you know, the same thing with Qatar, right? I mean, this is, which is even more flagrant. I mean, you basically almost declare war in a country because you want money. Biden has, has spoken very harshly of him in the past, and I don't imagine he's changed his mind. If anything, he's probably solidified his view. So I guess what I'm trying to ask you is, can this genie be put back in the bottle with the simple changing of regime in the United States? Uh, is it going to put an end to this kind of great game playing out all over the globe? I mean, I don't, I'm, I don't know enough about Turkey. I mean, the thing is that Erdogan did basically put in jail, you know, about 80 generals, the military staff who represent the investment of the U.S. government in Turkey, sort of political investment, uh, the investment being in developing a, you know, a pro-Western, democratically oriented military, which was not in the tradition of Turkey. I mean, since you, know, you had so many people going to West Point, so many people like participating in all kinds of things in Washington, and they're in jail, right? But for a while, I mean, you, you worked this file yourself as foreign minister, I believe. I mean, and you knew Erdogan, the idea of incorporating Turkey into the European Union, making it part of Europe, also to, not just to boost the economic quotient of the common market, but also as, essentially to keep Turkey from tilting. I actually gave what is now a very embarrassing speech in 2011, which mm. was, I think, printed at every Turkish newspaper where I said, look, this is the, during the Arab Spring. And I said, yeah. well, we should be supporting Turkey because it is the one, I mean, that counters the Huntingtonian argument about Islam. It is a functioning democracy. In 2011, it was a functioning democracy with a, all of the standard features, free and fair elections, the Montesquieu division of powers between the judiciary and the executive and the legislative and constitutionalism, all of that. I said, like, this is what Turkey is, what we should be striving to achieve across the Islamic world. So we don't get into this kind of hunting tone, you know, we're Christian, they're Islamic, we hate them and they hate us, blah, blah, blah. I mean, now, just given the turn that Turkey has taken since the coup attempt in, uh, I mean, it was already happening before, but after yeah. the, the coup attempt, real or not, in 2016, we don't know if it was really a coup or not. But anyway, basically what it ended up doing was decapitating the Western military elite, uh, the generals mainly. What I see happening now amongst foreign policy thinkers in this country. And I mean, indeed, you know, Macron, some describe him as having a very Huntingtonian worldview, right? There is Europe, uh, into which he now tries fecklessly to bundle Russia, uh, Judeo-Christian values, or actually, I guess not, because it's more the kind of secularism that he's on about. And then there is America, and then there is Islam, essentially, or the Middle East, and China, of course. But that kind of thinking, which is probably exacerbated by Erdogan's own Islamic authoritarianism, for lack of a better term, is going to 
push a lot of people in the direction of saying, well, actually, we should be, if not aligning openly with Moscow, then lowering the temperature and bringing Russia into, for instance, a lot of people think what Russia did in Syria uh, was to the greater good. They really believe like, oh, no, you know, armed Muslims with political agenda are all terrorists and therefore you know, Russia was doing what the West ought to have done. This is the Tulsi Gabbard line. Uh, to some extent, I mean, I think it was the Donald Trump line. You kind of see it between the lines of some of the thinking and, and writing that's taking place, which I think it actually does contribute to this idea of, oh, if only we do this, then Putin will do that. Doesn't hold. That's just simply not true. And right. has not been true. And all that's led to the traditional thing that is no different from the Soviet Union, which is you make a concession in the hope of getting something back and you don't get it. But they have you know, pocketed the concession you've made. Do you still remain hopeful for the fortunes of conventional 20th century style liberal, liberal democracy, given not just what's happening in the United States, but elsewhere? Or are you cynical? No, I'm fairly I'm fairly hopeful and maybe naively so. But since, you know, basically half my life was devoted to to establishing or reestablishing and then building up liberal democracy in a country that experienced 50 years of communist totalitarian rule, it is the equivalent of my religion. You know, as time ticks on, people such as your, yourself and your generation who lived under that kind of rule will be replaced by people who know only the current. And therefore, that kind of unifying vision, that religion, as you put it, will be supplanted by something else or supplanted by nothing, which may, in fact, be even worse. Well, I mean, it was just Ronald Reagan who said basically the idea of democracy is and free. Well, he said freedom. The idea of freedom is not passed on in the blood or through your genes. Every generation has to rediscover it for itself. When things, I mean, if things don't go re, I mean, dramatically and sort of bad as they did say in Eastern Europe in the period described by Anne Applebaum in, his, in her magnificent book on how the power was taken, it was grabbed. But basically when you're living under, when things start going south, as they have in a number of countries to varying degrees, I mean, mm. perhaps Hungary, Poland, my country is not doing that well. The UK is not doing that well. You have uh, things in for a while in Italy. Is that that galvanizes people and suddenly realize that it is not a given. I mean, you, when you see the response to perhaps not yet successful response to quasi or crypto authoritarian regimes in what was ten years ago liberal democratic, a full continent of liberal democracies, that people go realize this and go, shit, this is not a given. And you have to, in fact, I mean, there are these kinds of trends and tendencies and impulses on the part of people and that you have to remain vigilant. This is the Kagan argument, the jungle grows back, right? You have to have a generation of gardeners. <laughs> you have to have gardeners all the time with their pruning shears. <laughs> Don't let the weeds grow. <laughs> Well, I guess, you know, it is bolstering, although there's an element in the American culture war which says, no, this is actually the opposite, right? This is creeping totalitarianism in the U.S. But if you look at the way the media functioned during this election, and I have plenty of criticisms and grievances with how, you know, journalism is performed or underperformed. But one thing that was encouraging is we were on guard for disinformation and, you know, kind of manipulative operations, to right. put it broadly not just from Russia, but from other hostile countries, but also, and most importantly, 
from within. You know, people are, are bitching and moaning about Twitter putting up these caveats, uh, including and especially on Donald Trump's tweets. But when the president of the United States is, is lying or speaking in falsehoods almost exclusively, then civil society, you know, the fourth estate, and yeah, big tech seem to agree that they have a moral obligation, that they are duty bound to be a, a check on that. You know, sometimes you you cut flowers when you mean to be cutting the weeds in the in the in the jungle to strain that allegory. Well, I would say in the case of this part of a larger thing where I'm saying I don't think we're quite prepared how to deal with uh, this new technology, which is, I mean, we are in a revolution that is, that has not created its ideologies yet. Industrialization was, global capitalism had its theoreticians in Adam Smith, Karl Marx, John Stuart Mill as like the main ones, but I mean, more broadly, I mean, they're all obviously since the end of the 18th century, you know, that's half of political theory, if not more. But that was in response to uh, the Industrial Revolution and all of the phenomena that accompanied it, urbanization, the creation of a working factory working class. We're in as great, if not greater transformation due to technology we're in the middle of it, completely mm. in media rest. And we don't know, we don't have either the Marx or the Smith or the Mill to deal with it right now. And if you look at the utter transformation of the world, actually, and in such a short time, it's not when the computer came, it's when you got two things combined, which was the dramatic distribution, worldwide distribution of mobile phones, giving access to everyone to the internet, if you didn't have a computer, you could always have a mobile phone. And the other thing was social media, the profound effects of that. I mean, it used to be if you had an Illinois Nazi, to quote the, you know, the Blues Brothers, I mean, he didn't know the Indiana Nazi, right. he, right? uh, let alone the New York or the New Mexico Nazi. I mean, yeah, they were atomized. now you just create a Facebook group and all the Nazis know each other and whatever whatever that happens to be that group. And not only that, that you would get to know them, but I, I remember reading three years ago, I, I mean, it was banned after they did this, but you know, you can, you can select audiences for ads. And so these journalists actually said, you know, hates Jews, uh, likes <laughs> Adolf Hitler, you know, they got like 300 people you can send your ad to, right? I mean, so if you want to reach that, if that's your target audience, you can reach it and do it all, you know, with for pennies, actually, unexpected surge of responsibility on the part of uh, Facebook, and uh, most importantly, but also Twitter is stems more from a fear of what will happen to them under a Trump administration. Not that they would impose censorship, but rather that looking at their market dominance would 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 begin some kind of antitrust action or mm. try to break up these companies, which is, I think, a much bigger, their primary fear. If you were going to allow the kind of egregious behavior that you have seen from Donald Trump during the election, or I mean, or even worse behavior than before, yeah, it's kind of in your interest, especially if you think your his opponent is going to win the election and may take over Congress. Maybe you shouldn't allow this kind of stuff right now. Now the election has happened, and it, this might come might reflect badly on us with an administration if we have allowed this kind of behavior to go on without any interference. But okay, that's the local immediate case. 
I think more broadly, we do not know how to deal with this modern technological society of uh, hyper mass communication. But it's it's put paid to this kind of futurist notion that these technologies would be emancipatory rather than the other thing. Alexander Herzen said in the 19th century that what he feared most for Russia was Genghis Khan with a telegraph. Um, <laughs> Because as much as, you know, the dissident in Tahrir Square can use a smartphone to take down a dictatorship, the dictator can do quite a lot more. What we saw after 2011 was that totalitarian societies quickly understood that if you can achieve these effects uh, that you did in this Arab-speaking world with no political organizing behind it, but simply using social media, imagine how much power you have if actually put state resources into it, which we saw, I think, played out for the first time in a major way in 2000. I mean, as short a time ago as 2014, with the Russian invasion of the Donbass and Crimea, in which they managed to do all kinds of manipulations for which the BBC and the New York Times fell immediately. I mean, hook, line and sinker, and they haven't changed that much. But they have become more vigilant about... A little bit. You don't quite have your your ombudsman for disinformation, but you are now seeing, in in effect, the same thing. Um, a, A greater deal of skepticism, frankly, almost paralyzing fear that they will fall for some kind of active measure. So therefore, even things that may seem to be that, but in fact are rooted in truth. I mean, one of the other problems which we have discussed in the past, foreign reporting used to rely on people who knew the country or the area. I mean, now most U.S. newspapers do not have foreign correspondents. The ones that do, say the New York Times, basically has reduced this bureaus to a in a literal handful, I mean, it's basically Moscow, London, Paris, Berlin. And the, no matter how good those people are, and some of them are really excellent. I mean, I think of like Steve Erlanger. But so they rely on all these kind of stringers who write utter crap. I remember reading, the, sort of going out of my mind, reading an article in New York Times about how people in Slovakia wear masks, but people in freedom-loving Paris don't because... Slovaks are used to following orders. It was just, I mean, it was like one of these sort of classic cases of Orientalism towards Eastern Europeans, of which, by the way, I consider Borat to be also another prime example of, okay, so you don't know anything about the area, but they're different and they're kind of stupid to to me because, I mean... (laughs) So there is a kind of postmodern co-optation or reclamation, whatever the term of art is for that. Which also worries me because it means that, okay, so so Borat, we can agree, is crude and offensive. But if authoritarian regimes begin to seize upon the parody and use it for their own purposes, I mean, suddenly we, we begin to feel bad, not just for the Kazakh people, but for Nazarbayev and the regime, which is dangerous, right? That is part of this continuum of, okay, if, if Genghis Khan with a, with a telegraph was bad, Genghis Khan studying Derrida is absolutely terrifying to me. And this goes into the Pomerantsev thesis of Putin as a postmodern dictatorship, right? A Sorkovian figure who loves his Alan Greenspan and loves his Tupac Shakur, and sort of it's a wink and a nudge, but behind that, sheer and utter brutality and power lust. It's Berg. What do you think he likes Greenspan too? Did I say Greenspan? Oh God, sorry. <laughs> I don't know, man. Today it's it's back to the 1980s, or at least back to the... Uh, 
the pre-millennium. You know, you've got Rush Limbaugh dunking on Tom Daschle, Lindsey Graham talking about balanced budgets. I'm telling you, Trump has gone down the memory hole already for so many of these guys. Well, I, I hope that, I mean, in fact, it is our responsibility not to do that. Right. To hold to account that which has committed grave crimes and misdemeanors, high crimes and misdemeanors. Yeah. There's also the one way of fighting. I mean, you don't defeat totalitarianism completely until you've got lustration and truth and reconciliation, right? Well, I mean, we read two things regarding Russia. One was that the story about Vladimir Putin stepping down from his, from office. And the other one was uh, a bill submitted by the Kremlin to the Duma, which means, of course, it will pass. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Absolving or giving permanent lifetime immunity to Vladimir Putin for anything he might have done with my ripost is. But this is a tacit it's, acknowledgement that he has committed crimes. <laughs> Well, you don't need also, immunity would, if you're innocent. I would append to that. It's a law that applies on the territory of the Russian Federation. Right. And I would hope very much that should he ever step foot outside of the Russian Federation, he's provided with immediate free transport to The Hague. I think on that uh, cheery note, I'm going to call an end to this. Uh, but I could we could go on for hours talking about this stuff. And I would actually like to have you back as things develop or spiral out of control. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Well, one thing to talk about in a while will be this whole issue of accountability illustration, uh, because there are numerous approaches and not that many have worked. Complete and utter lack of accountability just means that you end up with a lot of former Nazis working in everywhere, the moral equivalent of. But then again, um, you know, the big mistake in uh, Iraq was completely this decimating the, uh, the elite and not really looking at whether you were, you know, sort of a political or whether you were an official. This is going to be a tough one. Clearly, Biden will not, I think, I mean, I don't know, I'm not connected to anyone, but I thinking politically, you don't want to have the first two years of your administration dominated by prosecuting. And he's already said, I mean, he, he wants to be the guy to reach across the aisle. And I mean, you're talking about a party that was held captive to a personality cult now is beginning to rediscover its partisan opportunistic instincts and is abandoning the personality. So there goes the cult too. The opportunistic people who participated actively, I mean, the various people who did very bad things, you know, putting children in cages and right. that stuff, you cannot let that stand. You can't sweep that under the carpet. Obviously, you can't pull a Yanukovych and go after your predecessor. On the other hand, the people who went and did very bad things should be held accountable. Southern District of New York can go after Donald Trump for crimes that he committed before he was president or during his presidency. And that has nothing to do with Joe Biden. I mean, there is a separation. Right. But if you look at the administration, I mean, I think a conscious policy of separating little children from their parents. Sure. I mean, that ranks pretty high up there on what would be considered uh, a crime in the uh, International Criminal Court, to which the U.S. is not a party, but then you better deal with it yourself, folks. The last thing I just mentioned, the one thing that will suffer a good deal for a long time after this is a role played by the United States that I found occasionally annoying, but nonetheless vitally important, which is 
basically lecturing countries on democracy, free and fair elections, and respect for human rights. I mean, sometimes it wasn't done so well always, but the point is the U.S. played that role where other countries, especially Europeans, were a little more transactional, but you know, the U.S. was really firm. And it's just lost that. It has lost its right to say anything about democracy and rule of law and human rights when you've got the OSCE correcting the president of the United States and saying we have seen no indication of widespread irregularity or voter fraud, you've really kind of crossed the Rubicon here. So it's going to be a while. This is something the U.S. diplomats themselves recognize. I mean, you can read Steve Pfeiffer, who used to be the, the professor at Stanford now, but was an ambassador, the ambassador to Ukraine. He said, like, how the hell are we going to tell these people you can't, you shouldn't be doing that? I mean, when the president of the United States is doing it, what are we going to go tell Ukrainians that no, 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 no? No, exactly. And that, that is a very um, worrisome thing because it means to some extent it's going to give license to bad behavior where America will have no moral credibility to call it out. Well, that's one of the, I mean, to end up on my part is basically the United States played for so many years, you know, for basically a three quarters of a century, such an important role in creating and enforcing norms of civilized behavior in, in countries. And it has lost that for a while, and it will be hard to gain, gain that back. It'll, you know, people will look at you and shrug their shoulders and say, what, you're telling us this? Right. Physician, heal thyself, yeah. Anyway, President Elvis, as always, a great pleasure and honor to chat with you, and I am sure we'll have you back on to talk about lustration and truth and reconciliation at some point. You've been listening to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss. Thanks so much. <laughs>